I've had five companies of my own, if you like, and three of them were successful. Logger 157 was one of them. One was kind of not very successful. In other words, I didn't make any money on it. And one was a complete failure. When I say complete failure, I mean that I lost uh, all my money and I had to sell uh, you know, the farm we lived on and we had to take the whole family and move into a very small 800 square foot, one bedroom uh, little house. And I did that actually when I was quite accomplished in my career. But it made probably the biggest impression on me in terms of, of learnings because I actually thought I'd figured it out by that time. You know, I was in my late 30s, early 40s uh, when that happened. And it wasn't during one of those moments when I thought, because I had been a successful entrepreneur, I had worked for some really large companies like WL Gore and Peak Performance and others. Um, and I just thought I knew it all, right? Hi there. What's it like leading the ultimate challenger brand? Patrick Frisk is less than two years in as CEO of Under Armour, the US athletics clothing company that goes head to head with Nike and Adidas every day. Frisk joined UA in 2017 to help get its performance back on track after a tricky few years when sales growth stuttered. He oversees a team of 15,000 and annual sales coming up on $5 billion. We discuss working with sports star ambassadors for the brand, including Anthony Joshua and Maro Itoji taking the helm from UA's long-serving founder, Kevin Plank, what he learned from his last job running shoe brand Aldo and earlier years spent at Timberland and North Face, and back in his native Sweden, losing the farm because one of his business ventures flopped. What are the lessons you take from failure? It's a great episode and addition to The Leading File, which now features 60-plus leaders from Marks & Spencer to the Royal Navy and the Bernardo's Children's Charity sharing their stories from the top. Take a listen and do let me know what you think. Patrick, it's really great to talk to you on the leading podcast today. And I really wanted to start with the mindset you bring to this role because Under Armour is a fantastic brand. You're operating in a really competitive space. There are two big competitors there. So I wonder how do you make sure that you don't have bad dreams about Nike and Adidas? <laughs> well, you know, I don't have a lot of bad dreams actually because I'm usually pretty tired when I go to bed. So I kind of, I try to get the few hours in that I can. No, I, I actually focus on the consumer. And I think that is a really important thing about Under Armour. You know, we are very clear on why we exist as a company. You know, we're a purpose-driven company. We're here to empower those who strive for more. We're very clear about our vision as a company and it is to create performance solutions you never knew you needed. And once you have them, can't imagine living without, which is completely aligned with the first shirt that Kevin made that made you feel invincible, right? And actually, we wake up at Under Armour every day with a mission to make you better. And that really doesn't mean that we're not understanding what our competitors are doing. But, you know, we know that if we do a great job making you better consistently and that we're part of your journey to compete, to train, to recover, and build that emotional connection with you, we're going to continue to make progress as a company and we're going to mean something emotionally. And that ultimately is why we exist here. So that empowerment for, for people that have decided to strive for more is something that we're passionate about here at Under Armour. And ultimately, if we do that really well, there's enough room for us to continue to grow as a company, especially in this world today, right? Coming out of the pandemic and covid where people are caring more and more about, about their well-being and their health, right? Uh, it's, it's certainly an area where we believe 
growth is going to be. And you're almost two years in and it looks like the news is getting better. You upped the forecasts for the year recently. I'm going to come back to what you found when you got there, but I'm interested in what you're doing at the moment that's getting the shareholders excited. And and, and I guess you've also got to get the staff excited. Yeah, exactly. So for the shareholders, it's really important for Under Armour to continue to show progress in terms of, you know, becoming profitable again. You know, it's the same for, I think, most companies coming out of a pandemic. you got to get back and you got to make sure that you've actually made progress in terms of staying competitive in the marketplace. It's been a while since we reported. Now we reported Q2 in end of July, early August, and clearly the numbers speak for themselves, right? Our inventory levels are very healthy. Our balance sheet is super strong. Uh, we actually had an EPS for the first half of this year that equaled all of 19. So Under Armour is making progress on all the important financial metrics. But I think more importantly, you know, we're winning in the marketplace. And we see that through how the consumer is reacting to the brand in terms of our consideration, our awareness. And when you do these kind of transformations with big companies, it takes a bit of time. And I've been in for four years with Under Armour now and two years as the CEO. And you're now starting to really see all of the work that we've done over the past four years take hold with the consumer. And, and I think that's what the shareholders are looking for. Which is what? Because there's some costs you've taken out. People say that you've tightened up the supply chain and so on. I mean, th- this isn't the the sexy stuff you associate with a great brand, but I guess you have to get your head under the bonnet to be able to fix that, to get clothes in the right place around the world. Yes, you do. When we started this journey, we, we really put everything into a construct because uh, the reality was that at the end of 16, early 17, uh, Under Armour had had such an incredible growth trajectory over such a long period of time. We actually grew over 26 straight quarters. And as a consequence of that, you know, you get to a certain point where you have to slow down to be able to speed up. And um, we really have looked at this transformation or the journey of Under Armour over the last 25 years in three different chapters. We had what we call the get big fast chapter, which was really up until 16. And then we had this slow down the speed up chapter between 17 and 19. That really was about what you just talked about, you know, making sure we got the fundamentals right. And you talked about exciting the consumer and exciting the internal teammates. I think that got actually the internal teammates excited because it showed that, you know, when we got things right, when we did the fundamentals well, we started to really perform again. And uh, in 2020, unfortunately, the pandemic came along, but that didn't stop us. We actually continued to do more transformational work in 2020 to be ready when we got out of it in 21. And now what you see is an acceleration. You see Under Armour being competitive again, better product, better marketing, better consumer connectivity. And ultimately, we're making more people better. And is that what had gone wrong? As you said, it had gone too far too fast. I mean, I think there were things that looked like fashion lines in, in there as well. And you've stripped that back a bit. It's absolutely correct. You know, one of the interesting uh, conversations I've been having with the investment community and the shareholders over the last four years is this laser focus that we have as a company on performance in, in inside of the athletic performance space. So we did a lot of consumer work early in my tenure here at Under Armour, and we still do all the time in terms of understanding the consumer and understanding the space where we compete in. Because one of the questions people asked me was, is Under Armour going to do what some of your competitors have done? Are you going to be more at leisure focused? Are you going to 
become broader as a brand. And one of the things we wanted to understand was, is there enough space for us inside of athletic performance, true performance to really grow? And we saw that there was plenty of space and that actually made us double down on performance. And that also made us hone our vision, tune our mission, and really also create this operating model to be able to, to service a consumer that we now call the focused performer, which is an important thing for us because ultimately we want to be very sharp as a brand. We want to be clear as a brand. And um, that, you know, to some extent takes a bit of courage, right? You got to be brave to really double down and focus, but you also got to stay disciplined and consistent. And that's what you see now. Okay. So there was the finances and the operations that you needed to fix. I noted in the reading, you, you've just settled with the SEC over um, some misstated revenues that go back to 2015. And there was this episode about uh, the, the memo that went out telling people, telling your colleagues, you can no longer expense strip clubs on, on the company. That's not financial. It's not operational. That's very cultural. So how do you fix that? Well, you know, you start at the very core, right? And it starts with values. So one of the other things that we've done is we've been working hard to establish a clear values for Under Armour. We call them sweat. Of course, you know, being Under Armour, that's a very uh, appropriate way to think about values. There are five of them. The first one is love athletes, which is really important. Second one is act sustainably, celebrating the wins stand for equality and fight on together. And, and, you know, those five values in terms of how we think about things has helped us just simply understand how to behave internally, externally, and how we also have a framework for making decisions. And especially down, you know, through the pandemic, it's been very helpful considering some of the social unrest and other things that have come on top of or as part of the pandemic. And for us, it was never difficult to lean into some of the decisions that we've had to make. If you're clear on the fact that you're standing for equality, if you're clear on the fact that you are loving athletes, if you're clear on these things, you're going to make decisions that are aligned with your values. So you talked about culture. I think it really begun with a very clear declaration of our values. And then ultimately also, uh, being clear around your purpose. And I think being, you know, this shift at Under Armour from product-led to purpose-led sends a very strong message around the fact that we are now a stronger culture at Under Armour going forward, and we're making decisions accordingly. So my boot camp instructor paid you the best compliment last night. He said, uh, it always fits. That was his feedback on <laughs> on UA clothing, which is all, something oh, really? the thing you've got okay. to aspire to. Yeah, no, he, he, so he, he was a fan. I'm interested in your point on athleisure. Are you saying that you don't really want people that aren't going to exercise to wear your clothing? You don't really want people slobbing about on the sofa in UA clothing? It, again, it's really interesting how we kind of end up in this conversation with people uh, frequently around the bifurcation of performance versus beauty or how people use things. I think it's impossible today to be successful or to create performance apparel or footwear if it doesn't have a component of style, right? And we also know that our consumer is very conscious about style. They want to look great when they work out. You know, it's, it's part of what makes you perform better is actually feeling good. And if you don't look good, you're not going to feel good. So we always start with a declaration of style as part of the things that we make. And we make 
great things to hang around in too. And, you know, we're concerned about the entire journey for the athlete or for the focus performer. So we think about this through the lens of train, compete, and recover. And in that recover time frame, that's when you're slopping around most of the time. And for us, we make some absolutely awesome things that you can hang around in, but it's not going to just be something to hang around in. We make sure that even when you do that, we're continuing to make you better. So for example, the thing I'm wearing here right now, you know, it is a, a Rush product. We call it Rush. It has bioceramics weaved into the fibers that creates an infrared effect for your muscles to stimulate blood flow. And I just love hanging out in this thing. And it's beautiful. Uh, it's helping me get better even when I'm just sitting around here talking to you. So for us, the consumer ultimately will pull our product into those wearing occasions that are less active as long as they're beautiful and they love the fit, like you said, and the comfort of them. So we're making things that are going beyond working out, but we're trying to be very conscientious of uh, continuing to really make sure that we're living the purpose in that aspect of empowering you uh, when you strive for more also in, in your relaxed moments. Okay, tell me about distribution. You're obviously online, you're in a lot of department stores in the States, and I see you're all over John Lewis in, in the UK. But I think you're doing more in this space. I mean, I was wondering, where is that big flagship in London or similar UK cities? Uh, you can get some good deals on bricks and mortar at the moment, I'm told. Yeah, so, so one of the things that we declared, and we did this on our earnings call in November last year, was that we were exiting undifferentiated retail around the world. And We've done that most recently and, and actually throughout this year in the U.S. where we're exiting about 3,000 doors, really making sure that we are partnering with wholesale accounts that are able to express the Under Armour brand as holistically as possible. But we're also becoming a better direct-to-consumer company, driving our e-commerce business and our brick-and-mortar business you know, in, in a very coordinated way, if you like. We just opened our 1,000 store in APAC uh, here last month, and we're continuing to build out, you know, stores in bricks and mortar uh, across the European continent. Some of them are franchise stores, and some of them also will be, of course, run by Under Armour. But uh, right now, the way to think about uh, how we look at the marketplace is it's really about the consumer journey, ultimately. And what we're understanding better and better is how to think about how the consumer moves through their journey, how we need to show up at the most relevant places for them, the content and the distribution, the actual delivery against that expectation from the consumer will be a little bit different depending on where you are in the world. But we always want to make sure we're driving a premium positioning for the brand. And that's really important to us. So that's one of the reasons why we have streamlined our distribution in 2021 and, and will do so going forward. Tell me about coming into the company in, in 2017. I mean, you, you've referenced Kevin Plank, who he was the, the footballer. He, he was fed up with, with sweating in training. He created a performance T-shirt in 96 and the rest is history. I mean, to many people, he, he was the company. So I'm interested in, in your thought process, the trepidation, if you like. You're coming in as a very strong number two and looking like the person that will take over. But you've got to be mindful of how you work with the founder. Founders are tricky people, aren't they? Well, I think, you know, kudos to Kevin Plank for making a very difficult decision for any leader and especially a founder to actually realize that it takes uh, more than one person to tango, right, in terms of 
as you grow and as your area of knowledge and your company becomes bigger, uh, you need to bring in people that have experience, uh, uh, you know, at doing the job across a larger company, which is exactly where Under Armour found itself. Kevin and I are working together on a weekly basis. You know, Kevin now, of course, is the executive chairman, which means that he basically runs the board and I run the company as the CEO. But that doesn't mean that Kevin isn't involved, right? I mean, our board is very involved in our strategy. Kevin loves Under Armour and spends time with Under Armour on a weekly basis. So there's a lot of interaction still happening. And of course, he adds value. There's something to be said for somebody that, that came in 25 years ago and took on some very large competitors and actually made it to 5 billion <laughs> by creating some of the most awesome products the world has ever seen in terms of performance. And then saying, you know what, I need some assistance here. I need some help from some experienced people. I think we can be stronger if there are uh, additional horsepower here in the organization. And, and we've partnered ever, ever since I got in through the door in July of 17. It's been awesome, you know, and um, I enjoy working with Kevin every day. So I think uh, we're stronger together. You know, he's going to be part of Under Armour for a very long time. Uh, he's our largest shareholder as well. So... Well, that can keep anyone focused. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's a pleasure and it's been a pleasure. Yes. Uh, and I'm interested. So, okay, so he's got all that. He's got the heritage and he, as with all successful founders, he, he started with the idea at the kitchen table or so on. How do you go about getting credibility, getting everyone, the 15,000 behind you? Well, I think the proof is in the potting ultimately. You know, I've, I've been doing this for quite a long time. I've had the opportunity to lead some really great brands in my career. And, um, you know, leadership is earned. I think trust is earned, right, uh, in a big way from an organization. And I think what we've been able to do at Under Armour, and one of the reasons I think we're feeling good about things right now is that we've created a really great rhythm for the company. And I think that's one thing that is very often kind of overlooked, right? People want to get a sense of cadence, of rhythm. They want to get a sense of an understanding of what the strategy is and how they can impact the strategy. They want to be empowered to do their job. So you need to be clear about your objectives. And that's really what we've done in, in Under Armour. You know, we've structured it in a way so that people understand why they go to work every day. And then ultimately, we're giving them the ability and the tools to continue to do a job better and better. And they're feeling, you know, a great sense of accomplishment through that. And I think if you do that and if you're consistent, and you're clear and transparent in your communication, people appreciate that. And, and I think um, that's what we've done at Under Armour and we continue to do and also has been one of the reasons why we've so successfully navigated this pandemic. And what does a company get when they hire Patrick Frisk? I mean, are you a, the, the fixer? Are you a marketer? Are you the alpha male? <laughs> well, I, I think I'm uh, probably all of, of the above to some extent. I, I think, first of all, I'm not one of these well-educated CEOs, right? I, I never went to college or university. So I instead took a different turn. I, I did my military service in, in Sweden at the time. And then I went straight into the United Nations. So I uh, kind of got my leadership uh, grounding in the military service. And then I actually became an entrepreneur, right? I started my own first company at, at a very young age in early 20s. Was always very much focused around sport. And by the time I got into my late 20s, I started to work for an American company called WL Gorn Associates, the, the makers of Gore-Tex. That kind of was my entry. And I guess I got my MBA there for five years. And then since that time, I have worked for 
some really amazing companies in, in the outdoor sports, action sports, and fashion industry, where I have grown with each job leading larger and larger teams. But I've also done that in a very global way. You know, I've worked in 10 different countries. I lived in 12, which is a bit unusual. But I've also worked across apparel, footwear, accessories. And most of the time, what happens to people in our industry is they, they get kind of slotted into a space. Uh, but I've had the opportunity to work across. And uh, having lived in many different places, I also have a good understanding of you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have a good understanding of cultural barriers, and I have a very good understanding of distribution across the world, whether it's uh, wholesale, retail, e-commerce. I guess what you're getting is a, um, a person that has been around a while, you know, in terms of experience. I've run many different brands. You know, I've run the largest outdoor brand in the world. I've been involved with the largest action sports brand in the world, the largest outdoor footwear brand in the world, and the largest footwear fashion brand in the world, and now one of the largest uh, sporting goods brands. And, you know, that, that builds experience. But what I've done as well is I haven't just moved on. I've tried to be very conscientious of how each one of these steps have added to my leadership skills and capability. I think at the end of the day, I have two things on, on my wall in my office. One statement or quote says, if you don't grow, you die. And that is both from a financial perspective as well as a leadership or individual perspective. I'm very, very, very determined to help people at Under Armour grow. So our initiatives as it relates to personal development are second to none. Second one is Simplicate. One of the things that I realized, that's a word that doesn't exist, by the way. And since you're a linguist yourself, you, uh, you will appreciate this. Simplicate uh, is actually the opposite of complicate, right, in my mind. And, you know, when you take that final step to CEO, you're no longer operational, right? You become strategic. And part of my job is, is actually simplicating things. And through the journey that I've had with running all these different brands, you know, one of the advantages has been that I really truly understand things end to end and making it as uncomplicated or simplicated as possible for the organization in terms of being clear around where we're going and how we're going to get there. And what we need to do is my job. And that's the book, by the way, Simplicate by Patrick Frisk. I think that's the one <laughs> we would expect to see in Barnes & Noble. Well, maybe you can help out. Maybe you can help out. It's interesting you talk about your CV like that. I mean, yeah, you, you've got the full outdoor wardrobe. It is all the brands. And you've gone back to the beginning, which I was going to do. I was going to take you back to Yelstad, which I think is your hometown. I read in the middle of Sweden, in the middle of a region known for, for textiles and wool and so on. And you worked at, I think, was probably, I guess, the biggest employer in town, which is Ivanhoe, which I think is a quite a famous brand there. Yep. You said your first leadership position was in the military. And I think there's something, having interviewed a few Swedish CEOs, I think there is something that that military exposure gives them early on. But I'm really interested, long before you met Kevin, you were a founder, an entrepreneur as well, with this retail you set up, Lager 157. So um, just a little on that, what you learn from that, because that really is when you start at the kitchen table, you're not inheriting a corporation there. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and actually that company is still run by, by one of the people that founded that with me still today. And they're very, very successful, actually. And I'm very happy for them. Yes. And, and you know, the interesting thing, I, I think, is I've had five 
companies of my own, if you like. And three of them were successful. Logger 157 was one of them. One was kind of not very successful. In other words, I didn't make any money on it. And one was a complete failure. When I say complete failure, I mean that I lost uh, all my money and um, I had to sell uh, you know, the farm we lived on and we had to take the whole family and move into a very small 800 square foot, one bedroom uh, little house in one of my buddies backyards basically and on his farm and i did that actually when i was quite accomplished in my career but it made probably the biggest impression on me in terms of of learnings because i actually thought i'd figured it out by that time you know i was in my late 30s early 40s uh when that happened and it wasn't during one of those moments when i thought because i had been a successful entrepreneur i had worked for some really large companies like wl gore and peak performance and others um, and I just thought I knew it all, right? And um, what happened was I actually did stretch myself way too thin as it relates to both the organizational aspect as well as inventory positions and not really thinking through the distribution aspect, really trying to do too much at once. And bought a few brands that I thought I could kickstart again and that were uh, really dormant and it didn't work out. Now. It never went as bad as, as going under. Actually, uh, some of the investors that, that we had in the company you know, took it over and continued to run the business, uh, never really very successfully. But you know, it, it, still, it survived, but it just was not for me because I'd realized when that happened, when I can really do well is where I have scale because I, I need resources. I need great people around me. I need momentum. And... I also kind of put the last piece of the puzzle together with that experience of, of losing all of my money and putting it all on the line um, because I, I actually saw that I was not great at everything. Uh, no, there were things that I still needed to learn. And, um, you know, I had to really pick myself up and um, actually did so and started a new company. And that one was successful. And then ultimately, at that point in time, I was also approached by VF Corporation uh, because they needed to have somebody to, to, to help them out. So I think those moments in time are uh, really important for, for a leader. And uh, most of the time, you, most leaders don't get to experience that uh, because what happens is you, you join a company and you, you know, you get, you're in a corporation, you grow, you grow, you grow. And, and for me, it was, I was in corporations, I grew, and then I became an entrepreneur again, first successfully, and then not so successfully. And then I went back into the big corporate world. And that, that journey is a kind of a different journey and uh, it prepared me very well for that second coming, if you like, into the corporate world, because failure is a good thing. Failure is a very good thing if you realize what it is and if you realize how to handle it, how to learn from it and how to pick yourself up and come back again. And, you know, that rise to fall, the comeback kind of story is exactly what's happened at Under Armour too. Yeah, that, that's that's amazing. I wrote down when you were saying all that, Patrick, betting the farm, because you more than anybody knows what it is to bet the farm. Yes. And it's very interesting to hear you say how that did. You know, you could have shied away and not come back, but you got back on the horse and, and the second win, the second act 
and here we are now. I just want to touch very briefly on Aldo Shoes because where you spent three years, and and that's another example of where you're good with founders, obviously. Um, so there was a quite a senior founder of that business. It's big Canadian shoe retailer, and as far as I can tell, you were inserted between father and son. Amazing experience to do a bit of a fixing of the business. So a little on that, really, on how you were, because it was quite a, you were only there, I think, less than three years, and then you handed over to the son uh, to become CEO. But it looks like you left it in uh, in better shape than you found it. Yes, I did. And, and it was an amazing experience. You know, Aldo Bensadun is a, is a wonderful, wonderful man, had created a an amazing company. And, uh, you know, they were also at that juncture where the son was getting ready to take the baton. And... Uh, the father needed somebody to bridge from an older CEO that they had had before into this new generation. So Aldo was the executive chairman. There was a sitting CEO that had been with the company for very many years, and the company needed to be restructured and then ultimately getting uh, you know the path for the son. So it was a it was a dual job. Part of it was you know fixing some of the things that need to get fixed, and then to also help coach the son into the role. Because Aldo was, of course, getting uh, older. I mean, Aldo was, Aldo was in his late 70s when I joined the company. And it was a great journey. You know, we did a lot of great work. And the son ultimately took over. And uh, as I walked out the door from Aldo, or, or as I was about to walk out the door, Kevin called. And I kind of went to Baltimore right away. It's nice to be wanted. Can you say anything on mentors? Who's, uh, who's helped you over the years to think about leadership differently? Absolutely. I've had a personal coach for the last 10 years, uh, a wonderful man called Craig Bentley. Unfortunately, he just passed away two weeks ago, um, and I am now going to be looking for somebody else to help me grow. I've had a coach, a personal coach for that long. I had other coaches before, but Craig and I uh, really had a special bond. And um, I think every person that is in my role, CEO especially, needs to have either a, a, a mentor or, or somebody that they can work with simply because the job is so lonely. And you need somebody that's completely agnostic to the work you do every day and can look at the work that you're doing, uh, both on a personal level, but also on a professional level and challenge you. My leadership team does that as well, and, and they do that very well. But but you also need a nuance to that, I think, from a personal perspective. And that would be my recommendation to anybody that steps into a role like this. Uh, you need to look yourself in the mirror and, and get somebody in to make sure they keep you honest, so to speak, right? And is it still lonely? I mean, a lot of more CEOs I've interviewed recently sort of shy away from this idea about the loneliness of the CEO in the corner office, and it's, it's much more collegiate. So it's interesting to you hear you say that, that there is a loneliness aspect. I guess if you're still running marathons, Patrick, there's a lot of alone time there when you can think about all, all the big problems. Yeah, you know, I, I certainly do work out a lot, uh, but it's more hiking these days than running marathons, you know, because my joints are getting a little older. But uh, it is lonely. I don't know. I would not understand a CEO that says their work isn't lonely because it does become lonely because you become so strategic, right? And, and you need to be uh, very cognizant of everything that you do and everything that you say to a much uh, larger degree when you take that final step uh, because people do weigh. Uh, your every word, your every action, your every, you know, nuance in, in your behavior. That doesn't mean that there isn't warmth in terms of camaraderie, if you like, in terms of the leadership team and the, the collegiate feeling that you talked about, especially in a brand like Under Armour, where, you know, we are, we are so much about the team and team sports. So there is this 
an incredible feeling of team at the at the executive level and across the entire company. Um, we've also seen that in all of the engagement service and things that we do. But you know, it is ultimately a very lonely role because you are decision maker, and uh, even if you empower your team, it's a lonely role. You do sacrifice to take that final step in in many ways, and also on a personal level. You know, I have a very strict regime in terms of you know when I go to bed and when I get up and 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 how I what I do because you know my team's expectation of me is for me to be at the top of my game every day, every minute, right? Because, uh, and especially if you think about going through a pandemic, you're making decisions on a daily basis that affects people's lives. Um, you know, we have 16,000 teammates. A lot of them are, uh, had to be in the forefront of, of this pandemic in our stores, in our distribution centers. And I worried about them every day. And I was incredibly proud this spring when I was able to increase the minimum pay for for our teammates in the US by 50% in one go to give them a nod to all the work that they did for the company during that time of, of difficulty. So yes, it's a lonely job. Just a couple more questions. I want to ask you about uh, dealing with the talent. Under Armour has, has signed up some fantastic sports people in the UK, Anthony Joshua, yep. Maro Toje, yep. Trent Alexander, Arnold J. Jones, and so on. How do you deal with them? Are they meant to look on you as a leader as well? I mean, they, they are on the payroll. They are. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that's really important to us is, and here's where the values come in again, you know, the athletes or teams or, or clubs or any of our relationships from a sports marketing perspective have to align with, with our values. Now, we've unfortunately had to make some decisions here over the last four years to restructure a lot of the relationships that we've had. And, and there's been a lot of uh, commentary about, you know, whether we're committed to our athletes or not, but here's the deal. We have a lot of athletes that you just mentioned. The difference I think today compared to maybe three or four years ago is that we also want to make sure we can activate those athletes and those teams and those relationships that we have for their sake and our sake. Uh, but we want to be able to do it through values and purpose-led lens. That's really important to us. So do they look at me as, as the boss? I don't think so. I think that relationships are, are everything in our industry. So uh, I certainly want to make sure that I do my part in making them feel valued and part of the team here at Under Armour. And we're incredibly proud of them. And all of the Olympians that we just had coming back from Tokyo, and you know that was an unprecedented game for them. And all of the work that they had leading up to that was probably some of the hardest work that they ever had to do. So we get emotionally certainly involved with, with things that happen. But I'll just give you a little bit of scale here. Uh, you, know, to, you know, if you look at how we support teams, we have about 49,000 teams that we support right across the world through Under Armour. Um, we have over a million athletes. So I can't really be there for all of them all of the time. So, of course, you're absolutely right. I tend to spend, uh, when I do have a chance, the, the majority of the time, like I will do with Anthony Joshua a little bit, right, this weekend here in London, because they are, of course, also more important, perhaps, than uh, some of the all the teams that I just mentioned, simply because they are the ones that we activate the most, right, in terms of what's visible to the consumer through the brand. 
And some will, absolutely, some will drive sales and some will don't. I interviewed uh, Bill Sweeney, who runs English Rugby uh, on the podcast a a few months ago. And of course, he, looking back into his CV, he'd worked with the All Blacks, he'd worked with Puma, and um, always very interesting. And lots has written and spoken about what business learns from sport. So if Anthony Joshua doesn't look at you as as the boss, and and I I didn't really think he would actually, (laughs) what do you pick up from these athletes who who are pushing themselves? and, And what do you take back to the boardroom and how you run the company? It's interesting that you ask that question because we intimately understand their journey to compete. And that is really the difference between Under Armour and, and, and other companies is that we are not just about the highlight reel, right? We're not just about that moment of glory. We're actually there with our athletes through their struggle, you know, through their preparation and also in their recovery. So what you get with Under Armour from an athlete's perspective is somebody that's in it with you. And that also is how we think about things. If you think about the purpose that we have of empowering you, those who strive for more, it's that empowerment inside of Under Armour for the work that we do every day. It's very similar. That journey to compete, that journey to be competitive here at Under Armour is what you feel inside of our walls. When you when you come to our campus, uh, you come to our meetings, you come to see our teammates, that sense of uh, grit right? Determination is, is what you feel with the brand, which is so similar to how, for example, an Olympian had to prepare for the Olympics this year, how Anthony Joshua has prepared for his fight, making sure that every detail, every nuance is, is done to perfection, making sure that you're training your, your mind, you're training your body, you're training your craft along that road is no different than what we do at Under Armour every day. So we take inspiration from it, right? We're inspired by the work that we see our athletes do every day and we bring it to work. I think that's a really good place to to end it, Patrick. I've asked all I need to, uh, unless you've got anything else to add. I just say thanks for taking the time and a great conversation. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, James. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. There are more than 60 leaders featuring in the Leading Archive. In the sports world, you can listen to Bill Sweeney from the RFU, Jack Buckner from British Swimming and the boss of Parkrun, Nick Pearson, talking about their biggest leadership challenges, how they got to the top of their organisations and the advice they offer to the next generation. More details at leadingpod.com and more episodes coming soon.